Welcome to the Altruistic Traveller podcast, interviews with influential change makers from around the world. That recycling is no longer sufficient to, to deal with these. That type of volunteering actually is proven to be more harmful. Trying to elevate poverty. I mean, they didn't see me that way. They see me as a human being, someone who needs help. Be inspired, educated and moved by global initiatives making this world a better place. For more stories and resources, please visit thealtruistictraveler.com. Hi, guys. Uh, Welcome to Season 2 of the Altruistic Traveler podcast. Um, Today, I am in a village in Nepal called Takure. I've been here for the past eight days now. I'm on a volunteer placement with an amazing organization called Conscious Impact. Um, Today I'm going to be speaking with Beth who is the program director and I would like to give you the spiel about Conscious Impact but she has a world of knowledge about the program and the cause having been here for many many years so um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast Beth. Thank you so much yeah thank you and thanks for (laughs) representing like really responsible conscious travel. Yes of course. Um, Yeah so just tell us uh, in your words, a bit about Conscious Impact and what they stand for and what they're about. Yeah, so Conscious Impact is a an organization um, that started up after the earthquakes in 2015. And there were two main goals, um, one being a sustainable development organization that could help people rebuild sustainably. But the second was about also creating a space where foreigners um, and tourists could come and actually give it back. After the earthquake, there were lots of people in Nepal and couldn't find a place to spend their time. They didn't know how to help. And so the founders of Conscious Impact, um, when we began, we really started working with that as a goal of being a place where people can come and learn about sustainable development work, but also about service work and what it means to be of service to others and how in order to do so, you have to really be of service to yourself. And um, and so still today, four years later, we are doing sustainable development work um, in rural communities and we create a long-term partnership of collaboration with rural communities. And so it's all about um, being able to respond to a need, but even more so being able to commit to a community's development over time as and as those needs change and evolve and as community um, grows more unified or um, changes in any way that we're able to still respond to ways in which they want to develop their own community. I mean, yeah, it's definitely clear that the model that you guys have created in terms of sustainable development really is um, a kind of pioneering in a sense that you're working directly with the community. And I definitely want to speak more about that. Um, I guess, first of all, um, so for those of you listening, I'm not sure if you know, but four years ago, Nepal had uh, a horrible, horrible earthquake. Um, Hundreds and thousands of homes were destroyed, maybe more. And so it was a time where there was a lot of uh, aid coming in. People kind of wanted to give back, but they weren't sure how. Um, And that's sort of what happened with the founders of this place. They were in a position where they'd been here, they'd fallen in in love with the country and they didn't know how to give back. So is that sort of the basis of the, or the foundation of how this program started? Yes. So yeah, they were just tourists hiking to Mount Everest, like lots of people um, do when they come to Nepal. It's the Himalaya mountains are known all over the world and um, everybody wants to come and hike in the mountains and soak up the landscape and the beautiful hospitality and culture of the local people who've been living in these mountains for centuries. Um, And so they were here and felt like, okay, something really devastating just happened to a country that we've soaked up beauty from for two months and how can we give back and and in what way can we make a a long-lasting impact because um, ultimately they're not an INGO they're just two humans and in order to make a big impact you really have to think about resources and in terms of like 
sustainable resources, how you can make them last over time. And so um, they decided looking, starting to look for communities interested in that. Um, ultimately, most of the areas that were struck by the earthquakes in 2015 were rural communities, communities that were far away from modern development, far away from building resources. And so in order to build back more resilient structures and more resilient communities, they were going to need access to resources. And so the project really started from this aspect of can you can you solve complex disaster issues or even just problems, complex problems of under-resourced communities um, using local materials, local intellect, local energy, rather than bringing in materials from the outside and having to call in ex extra support from outside, how can you utilize what you have locally? And in Nepal, like so many Southeastern Asian countries, there's a ton of work migration. Um, more than 75% of the young males, especially between ages 25 and 35, are outside of the country earning remittance money that they send home to their villages, but they're not actually in the country itself. And so um, what that creates is this huge brain drain effect where all of the professionals, they can earn more money elsewhere, so they leave the country. And what is left is not an economy that is easy to stimulate. And so in a disaster situation, when you have so much need for reconstruction, if you're constantly relying on outside resources, there's only a there's only so much you can do with a finite amount of money. A lot of big NGOs, they don't have necessarily a finite amount of money to worry about. And so they can just rebuild, rebuild, rebuild. And they have quotas on how many houses they can rebuild. But for a small grassroots effort, um, like Conscious Impact, and when it started, um, yeah, we, we had 18,000 US dollars to work with. And so it was about how do we create a longer term plan with this amount of money that helps sustain a community for not just what they're going to do in this first circumstance of losing their home, but say in, God forbid, like in 15 years, another earthquake comes, are we able to pass along resources and technology that allows them to build themselves up stronger than they were prior um, and so, so that they could respond to future disasters or future climate change or just create more resources and tools within the community themselves rather than having to rely on outside. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the biggest learnings for me coming to this place, it, and I've, I mean, this is my third time in Nepal, and I've seen um, a lot of the relief efforts that have been going on, but it's so easy from an outsider's perspective to say, oh, okay, like it's been four years now, all this money had been donated, like why isn't Nepal rebuilt? Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, like, I wasn't going to ask that question again after coming here because there are so many other factors that we need to consider to, it's not like, here's a bunch of money, good luck rebuilding your house. Like, it's not that at all. And I think when you're, um, like a bit, when you're looking at it from an outsider's perspective, that's what it seems like. It's really easy to see. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And, um, I think that's so true is that, um, yeah, when you look at just in terms of material items, and so you say, okay, this many homes were destroyed. Sure, in four years, it should be possible to rebuild this like 70%. But what you really have to deal with is emotional trauma that people experience. Um, the fact that so many areas were um, reliant on seed storage and on livestock and physical equity that was lost during the earthquakes. And so building back is so much more than do I just have enough money? It's about, am I ready to spend all this time and energy building a house that I'm going to be comfortable and attached to or feel safe in and then have the fears of another earthquake coming and it falling down? And then you add on another layer of trying to build in a different technology, trying to build more in a modern way and using sustainable materials, there's just so much to think about for a community member and um, so much to really ha have healed inside of you. And so a lot of Conscious Impact's angle was not just about rebuilding. We knew from the very beginning that when something traumatic happens to you, you don't really want to talk about that all day. It's not the only aspect of your life. And when all anybody ever shows up into your village to talk about is that, you're just kind of like okay, thanks for the help. Thanks for the support, but I'm going to keep you at an arm's distance because 
I just can't, I don't want to think about this that much. And, um, and so what we did is we came in and we knew we wanted to do earth blocks. And so set up a production center where we were producing compressed stabilized earth blocks, which is a technology out of, um, Oroville Earth Institute in India. Um, and so it was going to allow the community themselves to produce bricks that then they could use to rebuild their homes. And it would be much more affordable, less costly, both to the homeowner, but also to the environment um, and produce some local economic stimulation for the area. Um, and so we knew we wanted to do that. So we set it up, but we kind of just said, OK, let's do schools and community projects first and just let people come to us as they're interested, as they start to think about their houses and what they want their houses to look like and how they want to build stronger um, buildings. And then while that's happening, let's look at the other aspects of a community's life. And what we saw was everybody is farmers. Ninety nine percent of the communities that surround us, more than 20,000 people um, are farmers. And there is this trend of farming becoming less resilient, monocrop culture, the need for chemical fertilizers and pesticides is increasing all the way in the rural mountains of Nepal, where they've been doing organic farming for probably as long as anyone has. And, and so you, it's becoming more of this, like, how can I produce, 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 and just try to make money? But they're working with crops that don't really make money. And so we started talking to farmers and just ultimately we were also really interested in we're living on this land. We eat from this land. We should give back. We should try to grow our own food. We had never grown food in the mid hills of the Himalaya mountains. And so it also created this ability for us to learn from them and to create a different power dynamic than for us to come in and say, we have all the solutions you need for your life here. Um, and to more say like, here's one option that we know about and we're happy to teach you about. And here's what we know about agriculture, but what do you know? And can we create a more collaborative space to where their ideas and our ideas are meshed and that ultimately resiliency is brought about through that um, the diversity of thought the diversity of knowledge um, relying on their wisdom as well as what we've learned through western education or more modern types of education um, and so that's how the agriculture and agroforestry program was born was all about who are we serving we're trying to serve them and and even when you're trying to serve them, maybe you can't really get to know someone and what their needs are until you really get down in the soil with them and start to plant trees and learn about, oh, farmers are really interested in making more money from farming. And how can we do that? OK, trees are this area of interest for us because trees create land resiliency. They dig deep roots. They hold water in the ground. They hold soil in the ground. And in a place like mountainous as the Himalayas, having trees is really important and so how can we mesh the fact that they want to earn more money and we want to plant trees um, with a cash crop of coffee or fruit trees so that they can start producing um, yeah some have tree production a tree planted once can last for 60 years versus corn every year you have to replant and you retill and you re take care of it and if one herd of monkeys sweeps in and knocks out all of your corn you're you're stuck with no corn for the year and how can we create more of the permaculture mindset in local communities to where they can be um, diversifying their fields and diversifying what they grow um, as the climate changes. So um, was the agricultural program part of the initial plan or was it kind of like, um, I guess, let me backtrack. So why Takure? Yeah, great question. So when the founders were initially in Nepal responding to the earthquake, they were just volunteering for big relief organizations, kind of looking for what organization was really looking at, not what's just happening now and what's going to happen for the next three months or five months or six months, what's going to happen for the next five years. And they were really looking because... Um, when the earthquake happened, their whole networks back home knew they were in Nepal. And immediately after finding out that the founders were fine, people started asking, how can we help? Who do we send money to? Can we come and volunteer? What, what do we do? And this happens all over the world. Every time there's a disaster, there's this huge yeah. wave of the whole world wanting to respond and not knowing quite how to or what organization is going to use their money the best, right? And so they really felt responsible. They had a couple of weeks in the country post-earthquake and said, like, we should just start volunteering and see if we can find a really 
well-rounded project that is looking for long-term. They knew from the beginning they really wanted to look at long-term housing. Um, and so that was what they talked about was we're searching for a long-term housing project. In doing so, they really quickly realized that rural communities were going to struggle with rebuilding because of access to materials. And so then they started looking at earth-based construction and like how can how can you use the earth that rural communities have access to? There's so much land around here. Uh, in 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 the pursuit of solving this high need of houses to be rebuilt. And, and really the reason they were interested in long-term from the beginning was that on April 25th, 2015, there was the 7.8 magnitude earthquake. It struck in Gorka, which is a district west of here. Um, and about 10 days after that earthquake, a 7.5 magnitude earthquake struck. And so they call it an aftershock because it was slightly smaller, but it was nearly the same magnitude and it epicentered in the northern border of Sindhupolchuk, which is the region we're in. And what happens when aid is allocated after disaster is that if there's a simultaneously second disaster, there isn't as much aid allocated for the second response. And so they, Sindhupolchuk was not as a common, like not as, um, I don't know. It wasn't like being served as much as Gorka. There were tons of relief organizations going out to Gorka. And so they kind of, one of the founders had started like start doing uh, relief trucks to this area and had really felt like apart from any other areas, this, this area was really um, devastated. 98% of everything fell down. Um, and so there were whole villages where there was one building standing or nothing. And um, and simultaneously to that, the other founder was doing earth-based workshops outside of the Kathmandu Valley and happened to meet a man from this village um, who was in his 30s and who had just come back from 10 years working abroad in a Gulf country doing like chef work. And he had come back just before the earthquake because he felt a desire to come to his home. And um, then the earthquake happened. And so he really felt called to respond and really wanted to set up long-term reconstructive. And he, as a young man from Nepal, understood this issue with there's no work, there's no way of employing. So many men leave their families in the villages and go to work to earn money. And it leaves women and children very vulnerable, especially in the case of disasters. And so if there was a way to respond while also supplying some employment, giving some way for people to like feel empowered to work back towards having a home, he was really attracted to that model. And, um, and so they ended up meeting their values really aligned because he was also very interested in like, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to raise enough money or I don't know what ways. And Ellen and Orion had had about a decade of volunteer-based development work experience in West Africa and then Latin America before that. And so they had shared their ideas as, you know, foreigners traveling to a place. It's amazing to get to travel to it, but it's even more amazing to get to connect more deeply and be of service and often that's what people are looking for. They they want to be able to put their hands to use. They want to feel um, like they've been able to contribute to something, not just soak it up. And, um, and he was really open to it. And he said, I'd really like to invite you out to my home village and meet people. And they're really warm and welcoming. And I think they would be down for this idea. And so um, Alan and Ryan, the founders, came out to Takaray and sat down in families homes and um and they're these both extraordinarily tall um six four men and so they're very, oh, very tall. <laughs> yeah they're very like easy to notice and so people just welcomed them with their whole hearts though everybody they saw invited them in and gave them anything they could so, like they've just had the worst event of their entire lives and they're still serving tea and they're just feeding you anything they can and um, offering their beds for you to sleep on. And um, it just felt like a good fit. And it felt like there was a community here who was open to having support, but even more open to kind of a cross-cultural exchange that could happen. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely comes across in, I mean, there's so many options to volunteer, but just from when I came across the organization, you could really tell that it was a very much cross-cultural collaboration, very much um, 
let's work with the community and see what they need. Mm-hmm. So so the guys just came in, you know, three years ago, and they're like, all right, we're going to set up HQ here. Yeah. It, it's beautiful. Small, tiny town. Yeah, when we first started, it was like, it was very uh, rugged and we've slowly gotten better at living in the jungle woods and, yeah. and um, yeah, it's, it's been a place where we can experiment with local materials and also showcase that to local community members. Like the way we use bamboo is ways in which they never even imagined using bamboo and the way we build fire stoves is very different than the way they build fire stoves. And so it's, it becomes this place where, Sometimes they have great ideas and sometimes we have different ideas and this place where we can all try them. And, 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 and also at the same time, um, have international volunteers experience what it's like to build with your hands, to create, to think of what needs to be better and just do it. Um, in a, in an age where there's so much specialization and there's so much critique on how something should be done that I think people get into this mindset that they can't do they can't create or they're not creators or something. And I think a huge part of the learning about service work here and being involved in the rural development that's happening is also creating a space where people can explore what they can do. Because if you learn that everything you do can be of service, when you go back home or you continue traveling, you take that energy with you and and it doesn't stop you from doing something nice or it doesn't make you, you stop questioning like that, like intuition inside of you of like, Oh, this is the right thing to do. Or this feels right. Even if it's going to make a mistake, or even if in two years, somebody's going to come along and build a better stove, I'm still going to do this because intuitively I feel like this is what makes the most sense. Yeah. I feel that as well in this place. Like I've been volunteering here for eight days now and I really feel it's kind of one of those places where you have the chance to express your creativity, express yourself, experiment. And I think in some ways I feel like where, you know, we take that from the Nepali people who have basically lived their whole lives like this, experimenting, making mistakes, starting again, whereas, you know, where we come from, everything is so like structured and so many rules. And like you get used to the the no rules here in Nepal, yeah. but they just make things work. They do. And um, yeah, it's a lot of ingenuity and just like leaning into that chaos, leaning into that unknown of like, okay, well, we're just gonna have to try it. Or like, we don't know what the weather is. I think one of the biggest things I've noticed is how weather obsessed we are in the West. Like everybody's always checking the weather. Yeah. And here it's just like, when you ask a farmer if it's going to rain, he's like, well, I hope so, but I don't know. <laughs> and just that leaning into like, yeah, just the cycles of the earth, um, learning from nature, being able to build um, resiliency as a community to respond to things like disasters, but also like technology. And as their kids want to go to the cities and do different types of work, how do parents respond to that that are farmers? And how, how do you engage young people to feel active in their communities so that they don't just think the next step is leaving and, but they actually take a part in community development work. Yeah. And with the, like, this place is just so committed to sustainability. Was that um, aspect more so brought upon because we're so rural and we, and they knew that we needed to kind of use what we have here and then try and encourage the locals to use what they have here? Or is it just, um, is it more coming from our side or their side or is it like a collaboration? It's really, I think it's kind of a bit of both. I would say it was something that very early on we wanted to do and um, and that we had all worked for projects that didn't have had this essence of sustainability, but hadn't quite had the full commitment to it. Um, it's really easy to want to be sustainable, but to still, as an organization, make decisions that are not very sustainable. It's hard to be sustainable. It's hard to rely on local resources. It's really difficult. And so I think in terms of organizations that are constantly trying to race the clock and do projects so they can report to donors what they're what they've done and how they've you know really done well with people's money um we wanted to be able to set up a place where we could be sustainable and being so cruel happens to kind of force it upon us whether we like it or not at some times and so I think it's a bit of both I think also um very much in myself and the founders there is this essence of rural indigenous communities that 
I think still have a hold on sustainability. Whereas in the developed world, we've kind of lost what it used to feel like to just rely on what was locally available. You go to the supermarket and you can buy anything, no matter what time of the year it is. And very much here, you eat the vegetables that are in season. And there's no trying to like sway what those vegetables are. You just accept what the planet is giving you at that time. And so I think that there's something really beautiful that we can teach and learn from that experience. And rural communities, indigenous rural communities all across the world are the best for teaching it because they've been doing it for hundreds of years. And so, yeah, to create a project that is far enough away in a rural place that still has a hold on that, on that sensation and to be able to expose foreigners to that, um, I think is definitely something that if Conscious Impact were to continue elsewhere, it would be something we carry with us for sure. It's kind of like we've gone in this cycle in the developed world where we've really just lost our connection to the earth and where things come from. And we, we, I guess, favored convenience over anything else. And now we're looking to go back into where we originally were and the people that we can only learn that from are going to be the people that rely like solely on the land and live off the land and so yeah you can really see that in the community here um so yeah tell us a little bit more about the agricultural program so most of the people here are farmers they're all farmers and they would normally traditionally grow rice which is what their families will consume for the whole year. They'll grow a couple of um, different grains. One is millet. Um, They'll grow corn, and those are primarily used to feed their animals. And so really the ways in which they make money is if they have surplus rice, they'll sell it. If they have enough rice to feed their families, it's just money that they don't have to spend to feed their families. And then with their animals. A lot of dairy production goes on um, mainly, as well as um, chicken farming is coming in to the scene in the last three years. Um, And so it's really livestock and grains. And what happens is they grow the same, they know when to plant rice. They plant rice on all of their terraces that have water. And then they know when to plant corn, like right now it's corn season. And that's why everybody wants a little bit of rain, just enough to make the corn happy. And they know when it's wheat season or millet season. And it's, um, and, and it really is just those same cycles. And it's backbreaking work that you do for decades of your life that really don't earn you much money. A person can maybe make on one cow, a person can make maybe $30 a month. And Mm -hmm. so... Um, And in addition to those grains that you have to grow for your animals to eat, you also collect fodder for them every day. So you're cutting grass and leaves and you're carrying it back and then you use the animal compost to put back into the fields and it's a lot of work. And so um, a lot of work for very little money. So as you can guess, the young people are not interested. Their parents don't want them to do it either. And so there was this bit of us that, you know, really loves this rural environment, loves the cultural Um, complexities here, the identity of people. We want people to feel proud and valued and that their lives here are equally important to what you can find in the cities or um, elsewhere. And so it was really sad to us to see how, yeah, just like how non-exciting like farming was presented. And somebody mentioned that there was an existing coffee tree in the community. So we went to go look at it and we met the person who planted it and they said, yeah, there was once upon a time somebody came through and like talked to us about coffee and only a few people planted. Um, and we had been, we had known that coffee in Nepal over the last five to 10 years has really been booming. Like it's, it's proving to be a great place to grow coffee because you want high altitude, but you need warm climates. And so the mid hills of the Himalayas are quite a good scenario for coffee. And so um, we started to look into it and then were approached by another farmer who was really excited about planting coffee in this region. He'd been working with a foreigner who had been experimenting with different strains of coffee seeds for about two and a half years and really felt like this area was viable and said, I'm really interested in collaborating with you guys. Would you want to go in half with me? Like, I'm going to buy a batch of seeds. I'm going to plant half of them, but I don't have enough space to plant the other half. So we said, sure. And so we planted... um, 
11,000 coffee seeds that year. Um, (laughs) And it was a big first start. We were at one point we were like, Oh gosh, what if, what if this doesn't work? Or, you know, we're like really into this already. And, um, but we ended up being able to plant 9,000 with 73 farmers that first, um, year. And that was a really big step. It was a, it was the first time that a lot of people had ever planted a tree versus corn and it's very different. And so we did a bunch of trainings. We did a lot of educational outreach. We worked with farmers to dig their lands, to prepare their land, um, so that coffee could have the best chance at survival. And in doing so, we also created a farmer cooperative for the coffee. So a place where the farmers could gather and be unified. They have a guaranteed buyer um, based on the grade of coffee. They This year, we completed their processing center. So um, next year, this December actually, will be their their third year that the coffee trees are alive and it'll be their first fruit producing year. And so we've built the center and that's where they will take the coffee cherries and have the first step of processing. Then they'll store them there and ship out bags of dried coffee uh, beans to roasteries and to um, buyers that we've found. So it's really exciting. Farmers are really um, doing really well with the coffee. Some In some places, it's thriving, and farmers are really excited about this coming year. And in some places, there's been colder winters in different areas of the mountains. Nepal and all mountainous regions has a lot of microclimate. So mm-hmm. on the north side facing hill, you have a much cold, colder air than on the south side hill. And so there are some differences that we've learned about and we're just trying to stand with the community in um, in this goal that they have to plant more trees. And so whatever type of tree can survive in their land, we want to help give them access to. So last year we did not just coffee, but we also did a citrus tree program where we distributed um, orange trees and lemon trees and guavas and all kinds of different other trees that we think can thrive here. And uh, we've tried Moringa, we've tried lots of local species. Um, The other thing that's really unique about coffee and planting coffee with farmers is that it's a shade tree. It really needs like 50-50 shade. Um, And so that means that you get to plant it in forested areas. So it's not taking up your corn fields. You can still plant your corn and still have animal food. Um, But you plant the coffee in areas where um, there are already native trees growing. And so it helps reforest um, areas that traditionally have water erosion, um, areas where they get a lot of deforestation because people are building their homes and need lumber or people are burning firewood to cook. And so they need wood for that. Um, And so it's been this really beautiful, perfect collaboration of us really wanting to help stabilize land and support farmers to gain income and farmers really being interested in finding ways to gain more income and coffee as well as other fruit and nut trees are, um, yeah, we're really seeing a lot of success and this next year will be really exciting when the farmers pick their first fruits. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you're talking about like a whole new form of income generation and really one coffee tree a mature coffee tree can produce at a minimum of five kgs of red cherry Um, but most if a tree is really cared for it can produce as much as 10 kgs and the guaranteed buyer at a minimum is paying 80 rupees which is about 80 cents um, per kilo so if a farmer plants 100 trees um, and they get five kilos per tree, you're talking about 40,000 rupees per year, which is 400 US dollar equivalent per year when farmers are looking at, I mean, $30 a month for milk production is only $360 a year. So it's more than doubling some of what their access to current income is, which is huge. And then that's saying that a tree will produce that for 60 years, whereas your cow survives maybe, if you're lucky, 10 years. I don't don't even know if it's that long. Um, And so it's really about changing, like, a huge culture in which people see farming as an income-generating experience, um, as well as a multi-generational experience. Like, you're planting with people who are going to die before their coffee trees die and their children are going to inherit them. And that it's creating this, yeah, this resiliency beyond a current generation. Yeah. It's really neat. And so, I mean, to plant, 
tens of thousands of trees. Like that's a lot of work. So, I mean, I'm here as a volunteer. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about um, the volunteer model that you guys have and, and how it's kind of grown over the years and what it's been like as a, I guess, volunteer coordinator. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's often where we can really help support community members. Um is with energy. They don't have a lot of extra time and they don't have a lot of ability to take risks. And so if you tell a farmer, okay, well, if you plant a hundred trees, you could earn as much as 40,000 rupees a year. They're excited, but planting a hundred trees is not something that they necessarily have time for, nor is the three years where it's not producing fruit. Do they have time to water? Do they have time to give compost? Do they have time to really care for the tree so that it can produce the fruit it has the ability to? And so what we have found in this way to try to inspire um, taking risks is to support them through energy. And so we go out, we work with um, farmers who have been trained by us and they're able to sign up for volunteer hole digging. And so basically we go out with a team of five or six volunteers per farmer and we try to dig holes with them. One, to show them how to do it more um, individually, but also too, because if we can get a jump, a head start on it, maybe they'll feel a bit more inspired. Like, okay, I wanted to dig 50 holes. I just got 30 done. Now all I have to do is 20. And if I do two every day for the next 10 days, I'll be done. And so it just allows them to see it's not this looming 50 holes anymore. It's this very sizable, very doable thing. And so it's just about giving energy. And a lot of our volunteer model, even in the beginning, was about trying to give positive energy in a environment that was very traumatized and very much felt like their lives were never going to be the same. And so our first year of being here, it was a lot of celebrating the holidays with them just like taking time out of work and just like, of course we wanted to come and immediately start building and like doing all of this stuff. Everybody needs a house, but really what they needed was just emotional support to feel like if we celebrate this holiday, life can go on. Or like if we do this thing that we've always done, our lives can, can be built back and they can actually be built back much stronger when we think of it. Mm. And so putting volunteers in this environment, it's really about yeah, giving positive energy, giving love, showing them that they're not alone. I mean, when you think of standing in solidarity with someone, you're really talking about standing beside them through all of the trials and triumphs. And so that's when the coffee trees are doing really well, as well as when it's the coldest winter last year and a lot of coffee trees die. Or when there's tragedy among the village as somebody dies or there's joy when somebody um, a new person is graduating from high school or getting married or going off to a new life and so um, yeah I think there's this aspect of us in the volunteer model that was really in the beginning it was going to be important to be locally based um, I had worked for organizations where volunteers were brought into a community and then taken out each day and kept at a lodge and we, myself and the founders, we knew that wasn't the situation we wanted to create. We wanted to create a situation where people felt truly supported and stood by and, um, and that we can see all parts of them. Like there's no secrets. They know who we are. They know what we're good at, what we're not good at. We know who they are. We know when they're good and when they're struggling and we can just simply live life with them. And that that consistency is something truly valuable. And um, it's something that I had never experienced before either, of that an organization to create a long-lasting, really deep relationship. Um, that, yeah, consistency is such a part of that, to show up every year, to show up to their festivals, to celebrate different festivals we have, to, to just do life while still trying to create sustainable, positive change. Um, and volunteers, I think, have this unique power in that of, of being vibrant, often coming from more resource-rich communities to where we do have the energy or we have the financial stability to be able to travel and to be able to work for free, essentially, for however long we choose and to be able to show up and work. I mean, farmers are doing backbreaking work every day. So when you ask them to like move a truckload of bricks, it's just more backbreaking work. But when you get a group of volunteers who's been traveling and who has a lot of energy and desire to make change, um, 
and you put them to work, they're able to show community members what happens when you come together and what happens when many hands do something. You're able to accomplish so much. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been here for eight days now and I probably worked like I've probably done more physical activity here and pushed myself Mm. more in the past week than I have done maybe ever in my life. And as hard as it is, it's just so humbling because you realize like these people do this every day. Mm. And while you're out there moving bricks or digging holes, like you, you have the, the other volunteers with you and you're kind of like, okay, yeah, this is what happens when community comes together. Right. So it really is um, shining through. But I mean, I've only been here for eight days. You've been here coming here for what, three years now? Yeah, three and a half. <laughs> and like, what is that like personally for you? Yeah, it's um, it's really transformative. I've learned so much about myself um, in the last three and a half years. In addition to constantly being, you know, we have this like revolving door of what seems like the most amazing group of people to come in and volunteer and collaborate in this work um, with the community. And then the next month there is just an, another incredible group of humans. And so it's really, I never struggled with having faith in humanity. Um, I always felt like people in their purest form were only good. And this is just confirmed that in every aspect that you can have people show up from all over the world all different backgrounds, speak different languages and mother tongues and, and to come and to have a unified theme, a unified like reason you're here, it transforms what people are able to do. It really um, is amazing to watch us dig a foundation and start to build a structure or to move trucks on trucks of loads of bricks and then those to become houses and to just watch what people can do when they set aside differences and they just focus on unified goals um is really transforming my life continuously um and and it's also been this story of strength I feel more strong than I've ever felt and I feel more supported than I've ever felt. We, um, one of our big aspects of having and hosting volunteers is living in community and, and sharing responsibility. We cook together, we clean together. Um, and that built a lot of camaraderie and which makes being here together easier. But it also, I think, really shows how supportive community living can be. And I think um, in a lot of ways, modern development says like specialize and kind of separate and you're kind of um we've break, broken down community into like family units and how you're supposed to get everything you need from a family unit from a mother and a father and siblings and then you maybe have your neighborhood friends and you go to school but everything is quite so segmented and here it's quite the opposite everything is really meshed together you've got your personal stuff that comes up you've got your physical stuff that comes up you've got the work stuff um and all while experiencing social stuff that comes up and so there's no segmentation and I think that that can be really extreme in some cases like you can come into the space at first and you just can be kind of overwhelmed like there's so many people and there's they're like we can be quite loud or there can be a lot going on all the time but at the same time when you sink into that even as an introvert as myself when you sink into it what you really feel at least what I really feel is just this unconditional support that like no matter who comes through no matter what happens even um really difficult scenarios that there is this support system to lean on that um yeah that there's something beautiful about somebody else cooking you a meal or you doing everybody's dishes or um you needing a sick day and knowing everybody else is out working but that you have the space and time to take care of yourself and I think in a lot of even development situations you have a lot of workers who end up becoming burnt out because they're so spread thin. And I think this community of volunteers really sustains our, like our core team's energy. I think the reason I can be here for nine months of the year for three and a half years is, um, that continual energy. Like every time there's a new group of energy, you just feel like alive again and you feel supported and you feel like you can take care of yourself. You can do yoga. You can take a day. You can, recognize that things are so much different in rural Nepal even things like access to internet is really difficult and so even just like trying to transfer money or send an email is 
take so much more time. And in that time, you can just start to appreciate everything that's around you and including the people. And so I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of, we get sustained by the, the people who come and who give their all for 10 days, for five days, for 20 days, for 30 days. And, um, it's how our work continues. Definitely. There is definitely something unique about this place. I mean, I sort of came in as I was alone and and then I, you know, saw all you guys and the ways that you interacted with each other was so inspiring at first. And I remember thinking like, wow, you know, I'm going to have to let down so many walls while I'm here because I'm also an introvert. Mm. And, you know, the way that you guys hug each other and tell, tell each other that you love each other and literally within like maybe two days that same thing was happening with our group of volunteers and now you know we hug each other all the time and we tell each other that we love each other and it's like it's only been like you know a week exactly and isn't that the way the whole (laughs) like I just feel like that's the way the whole world should be oh yeah life is so precious humans are so unique and precious and so is the planet and so like if you're not spending every day waking up like in full appreciation of the humans in your life and the nature that surrounds you and nourishes you. Um, and yeah, just kissing the people you love faces and telling them how much you love them. There's so much, um, there's so much, I think really affirmation that comes from community living. Like people I love can constantly help me become a better person, but also show appreciation for me and who I am. Yeah. And that is just continually reciprocated in this environment. I think you said it well before when you said that in our societies where we come from, like everything is a bit segmented, you know, Mm -hmm. like your community is essentially your family or the people that you work with or, Mm -hmm. you know, your close friends. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, maybe, but I do feel a sense of like people longing for more than that, like mm-hmm. longing for a, a deeper, deeper sense of community, not just within their immediate circles, but like it takes a lot to kind of break down those walls. Like for me coming in here on my first day, it was like you have this hesitation because that's all that you know. Absolutely. And we're, we're wired to, to protect ourselves, to not be vulnerable. Like, yeah. you know, we're, we're wired to feel like we're not worthy and so we can't show our true selves and I think um or I think that that's what maybe our society has taught us or this age of digitalization where you can see so many perfection so much perfect life and you feel like you can never compare and never live up to it and I think there's something um so so important about laying down those walls and you can create community it takes work and it takes energy but I really do believe that people should spend more time with other people and should spend more time just in appreciating the environment. Like all it takes is you inviting a few friends or a few people you know in your circle to a camping trip over the weekend or even just a sunset watch or a stargazing night or you know how many times in your week do you allow yourself to engage in that social energy and I think there's so much about like the overworked culture as well of like oh, yeah. the time you by the time you get home you have to cook a meal and then you're just tired and you don't have time to socialize or it doesn't feel like you do and so I think there's a lot of that but I I do believe that people are searching for more and I think that an important aspect of this is is showing people what you can do to unify people and immediately. Like if you put people on a dish team, they'll immediately start talking. If you put people on a cook team, it's the same. Like the amount of flavors that come out is extraordinary, but even more so people feel unified around being of service to one another and being of service to other people. And service isn't an international development thing only, right? It's a, it's a human to human thing. It's when you go into the grocery store and somebody is struggling to get something off the shelf and you help them or somebody drops something and you give it to them like services everywhere we look. And I think that even more so than washing dishes and cooking, if you just think of service, I think that that is one of the best ways to like interact with other humans and to really grow a sense of community is to create opportunities for people to be of service. And so, yeah, I I tell volunteers all the time, like some of the most important work you can do is, isn't during your time here. 
It's being here. And then it's taking that energy back with you and showing you that even when you travel as a digital nomad yourself, like even as you're traveling, how do you, how do you meet people and how do you find a way to connect deeper and how do you invite opportunities into your social calendar that allow people to feel a sense of what you felt here? Um, because you'll ultimately carry it within yourself. Yeah. And so it's like how conscious impact this like vibrancy of energy continues to spread. Like if we all just stayed here, it'd be amazingly beautiful. And I would love it. Of course, like that's the hardest part of being here for three and a half years is saying goodbye to people. But ultimately, if we all stayed here in this little bubble, it would just be a bubble. And the whole point of this is for it to spread and to grow and to live within you and to live within others and for people to feel more connected to themselves, more connected to other people, to more connected to the environment. Like that's really when you talk about conscious impact, that's our whole hope. And that's for the local community, but it's also for the people who come into the space and um, are of service. Well, I can only talk from first-hand experience, but I do, like, this has probably been one of the most life-changing weeks of my life. I mean, it's just that this sense of community here being connected back to the earth. Like, I grew up in a city. I haven't touched a garden for goodness knows how long. And, like, mm-hmm. it's only been eight days, but the transformation and just in, in myself and in other people, like, I really, I knew when I first wanted to volunteer here that, that I was drawn to the cause, but I didn't realize until I came here, like how much um, impact you're making, not only on the local community, but also on, like you said, every single volunteer that comes here. And I know personally that I will take that with me. Um, And that's all we can really do is just be like the best versions of ourselves for other people to create change. So thank you so much for for creating this space. I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm really, I'm so happy to hear that that has been your experience. And yeah, yeah, it's my hope. I would love to do this all over the world because I think that, yeah, giving people a taste of this is what we need to live more harmoniously and to live more fulfilled, happy, content free lives and um yeah I really appreciate your time and your energy (laughs) holes moving more bricks and all of it like using muscles that I didn't know yeah exactly Um, and so like what um what is the future of conscious impact so yeah so conscious impact will be here and um continue this work in Takare for as long as this community wants and um so we hope that's for hundreds of years Um, (laughs) but ultimately um we want to be elsewhere we want to create projects elsewhere and um yeah we really would like to work in Latin America um a bit closer to home for some of us Mm -hmm. and um also just an interest in the deep indigenous culture of Latin America and all of the knowledge that you can learn from land there all of the things you can grow that are different from here um and also the founders and I all, all met in Ghana, Africa, and it's a place that's all really close to our hearts. And so we'd love to get back to Ghana at some point. Um, but ultimately, we just want to support this type of work to happen. And so whether that's um, led by the people who are conscious of back now or as it evolves and people start up projects and we're able to support them, um, really, we just want to be a network of compassionate service workers um, who believe in community living and community service work and who want to do collaborative rural development work yeah well um if the whoever's listening would like to find out more about conscious impact yeah just visit our website consciousimpact.org slash volunteer um and there's all kinds of loads of information blog posts written uh we'll have to post this podcast to it as well and um pictures and you there's a volunteer form you just fill out the form and you'll hear from our team within a week and um you can ask any questions and you can feel it out and make sure it's the right fit for you but we'd love to have anyone um and all are welcome cool well thank you so much for talking to me today thank you for creating this space i know i've said it a million times but yeah it's um it's just been such a fantastic week thank you thank you thank you so much for your time and for everyone listening